Back in Australia now, but at Murdoch University and the Harry Butler Institute, where Dr Adrian Gleiss is depending on diaries kept by marine explorers to illuminate both their lives and the state of the planet's waters. It all depends on a daily diary. So, Dr Gleiss, what really is this intimate record? Well, the daily diary is essentially a small device that you can put on the back of any animal that is akin to us writing a diary. It records the life of the animal in as much detail as is possible and therefore gives us the biggest insight into what's important to that animal's life and therefore gives us an understanding of what that animal does and what's important to it. It's a tracking device, but how do you know from the signal you get where it's coming from? The Daily Diary is actually much more than a tracking device, whereas a tracking device simply tells you where your animal is using something like GPS or satellites, you know, radio waves such as VHF. The Daily Diary is really more akin to what you have in your smartphone. It records accelerations and movements at very high frequency, and if you can decode those, it tells you what the animal is doing. It tells you if your animal is sitting, if your animal is walking, it tells you if the animal is gliding, if the animal is flapping its wings tells us whether our turtle is digging in the sediment and is trying to find food. So it really goes beyond the where, and it goes really to the question of what is our animal doing. And when you, Adrian, when you find yourself leaving Perth to go to the wet, where do you actually find these creatures to put trackers on? Not non-trackers on, sorry. Non-trackers. Oh, look, in lots of different places. A lot of our work over the last few years has been here in Western Australia. I mean, Western Australia, of course, is an incredibly unique place from the temperate south to, of course, the tropical north. A lot of our work over the last few years has been on a turtle called the flatback turtle, which is a sea turtle, which is only found across northern Australia. So they're really quite a cool critter, but a critter that we know very, very little about. So despite these guys weighing up to 80, 90 kilos, we actually don't really know where they go and forage. We don't know what, what their lives looks like outside of the nesting beaches where we've studied them well, for example. So we've been doing a lot of work off the coast of Broome in the Kimberley region here, where we've been putting these devices on to just try and get a, get a better understanding of what the lives of those turtles look like. Well, we've seen pictures of the nesting beaches and sometimes they're harrowing, of course, as various predators come in and try to catch the little babies as they waddle. You know, how do they know where to go? They've only been alive for seconds or minutes. Yeah. And when they go into the water, the ones that survive, you think, well, they'll go off and they'll come back as adults a year later and that'll be it. But did you find it's not like that? So for many, many years, we've been wondering about the sea turtle lost years, if you will. Because a lot of times a sea turtle, like you said, the, the hatchlings will crawl into the water and then come back as adults ready to lay their own eggs. And then even it's only the females, of course, coming back. You're also wondering what happens to the males that crawled into the water that, of course, never have to come back up on the beach. So what science has found over the last few years is that it's currents that, of course, take these little turtles to remote places, which it's, at times can be many, many hundreds of kilometers away from the nesting beach. And those same areas that, where those little hatchlings get evicted to by the currents will then be used as a foraging grounds for those turtles. And even when they get to um, adulthood and they'll return to their nesting sites, they will then again swim hundreds and hundreds of kilometers to those foraging sites. So they're just as much as they're faithful 
to the place where they were born. They're also faithful to that first place where they were evicted to as juveniles. But the tricky thing is, how do you study these animals in those places? Because humans, we're terrestrial creatures. We're pretty good on our two legs. And even the strongest swimmers and the best divers were quite pathetic underwater. And that, of course, makes it tricky to work on those fully aquatic life stages of these animals. So what made it particularly interesting then is that you need to go to these places and you need to, first of all, catch these animals because they're not going to come on shore for you. Drive around with your boat, someone jumps on the back of a turtle and holds on for dear life, or we can just use a scoop net, which works reasonably well for flatback turtles at least. And then you can bring them up onto your boat and you can equip them with your daily diary. So in our case also, um, a lot of our trackers, they also contain a video camera. So not only do we get all that information from the sensors, we also get a turtle's eye view of the environment where it lives. We see what it sees, and we see how it responds to those environments. For the most part, we attach them with four suction cups, you know, just on the top of the carapace, and then off the turtle goes. And that will stay, on, stay with the animal for between 12 hours to about three days. And for that period, we'll get the most detailed record of that animal's life that we could possibly think of. After those three days, it comes off the turtle and floats to the surface, and then it provides us with a radio signal to go and pick it up. How far away do you have to go to find it sometimes? So, of course, when we think about migratory animals such as sea turtles, we think that they will swim many, many kilometers. But for the most part, when you're in these foraging hotspots, the turtles are there for a reason, and they actually don't really want to go anywhere for the most part. Their food's right there. It's probably going to be another six months or a year until it's time for them to reproduce again. So in this case, I think no turtle was further than about five to ten kilometers from the place where we tagged it in the first place. Yeah, so actually not that far. There's some other species which can move really long distances. We've done this for a few years now with whale sharks. On one particular occasion, I actually messed up a little bit, and the mechanism that was supposed to release the tag of a uh, giant bluefin tuna off the Canadian coast unfortunately got stuck. So this animal was tagged in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So it didn't come off after two days. It came off after two and a half months, and the animal was off the Canadian coast off of Sable Island, 300 kilometers offshore. Some poor soul was, was put on a boat to go and get it, and he did get it back. But um, so for the most part, these things do stay in one place. But no, we've had the odd instance where we had to go slightly uh, further afield, so to speak. With all this information coming in and even the videos, what are the biggest surprises for you? The first thing I think for me was seeing how often you actually see nothing. This might sound sort of slightly boring in some ways, but for example, we have hundreds and hundreds of hours of video looking over the shoulder of great white sharks. For most of the time, they do absolutely nothing. So that's been surprising in some ways. It certainly makes for hard work when it comes to the volunteers that review all this video footage. But in, in all seriousness, one thing that definitely made us all go wow has been recently, it's been a good old friend, the flatback turtle. And we had a flatback turtle that with a camera was stumbled upon by a tiger shark. And tiger sharks love nothing more than to have a little bit of turtle for breakfast. And what was really fascinating there was how the turtle behaved towards the shark. I think all of us have this understanding of, of turtles that if faced by danger, they retreat into their shell. And of course, that is built upon our idea of what a tortoise does. Right? A tortoise can retract its head and retract its legs, and it simply relies on that hard shell to keep a predator at bay. And in flatback turtles, or, or sea turtles, of course, they cannot. 
retract their heads nor their flippers. This, they remain innately vulnerable to a predator. But what we found what this turtle did was actually to respond with aggression. So every time the shark would approach the turtle, it would square up against it, and they would actually make a run at it. And they would try and bite it, and at one point actually takes a, a piece out of the pectoral fin of the shark. So the shark just went like, okay, I've had enough of this. And he went off in his separate way, and the turtle lived and to tell the tale another day. So that was really uh, incredible. But the other thing, that, of course, that was very interesting about this particular incident is that while you're watching this, it's unscripted. You don't know what the outcome is. So it is, it's like watching a really exciting movie because you do not know what the next thing that's going to happen is. So, so that's certainly been absolutely fascinating. But other than that, there are just lots of interesting interaction where the species see each other and uh, where, where you see different individuals see other species underwater. So, so as far as the video, that's been the most exciting. But for me as a biologist probably and as a scientist, the most fascinating thing has been what has come out of the data. And one thing, for example, is, and this was work I did during my PhD, so it's kind of really near and dear to my heart, is that I actually found out that whale sharks swim in a manner that songbirds fly. And that's one thing that I found incredible. So, so whale sharks, or all sharks actually, and we're finding actually that a lot of sharks do this. Most people know that sharks are negatively buoyant. So when they stop swimming, they sink. Just like when a bird stops flying, it falls out of the sky. So there's all this potential energy that can be harvested. And what whale sharks do is they'll swim in a series of dives, or oscillations, where they dive in a very, very shallow manner. And on the way down, they won't beat their tail. And they'll use their big pectoral fins to translate all of that negative buoyancy into distance. Then they swim up again and repeat that. And this is exactly how a lot of songbirds fly, through what is called undulating flight or bounding flight in some other species. And that was incredible to think that these different ways of being economical in traveling through your environment, that that spans across such completely deep evolutionary time, right? I mean, you think about when was the last common ancestor between a songbird and a whale shark, but also that it transcends across those different media. Parallel evolution. Parallel evolution, yes. Convergent evolution, in fact, because there's a degree of convergence after this. Yeah, and so that's fascinating. And so we found white sharks do it, lots of different sharks do it. We also found some seals do it, which is very, very cool. So that's been one that's surprised me the most. And I've had, had the most fun writing about. <laughs> so are you getting a picture now of the intensity of the scientists' work on marine science and climate? A storm and wave simulator, a microalgal farmer, a CO2 curve tracker, and now Dr. Adrian Gleiss using marine creatures with daily diaries to show what's out there in the deep globally. Adrian is a senior lecturer in marine biology at the Harry Butler Institute, Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia.